Hi, welcome back to Shop Talk with the Sheriff. I'm Sheriff Gregory Tony here in Broward County. Today, I have a special guest with me. You've probably seen his face throughout the county uh, on news channels, but then we were able to bring this gentleman in to support BSO staff. I have a special guest, Kerry Codd, who will be joining us on this episode of Shop Talk with the Sheriff. This is an important episode. This is kind of a season in review, an opportunity for us to talk about what occurred over the last year here at BSO. For some of you who've been following us, you've probably seen me uh, bring in different guests, some who work outside the agency, some who work internally. Well, today, this is about talking about what we've been able to accomplish within the agency and how we've been able to impact Broward County. So, Kerry, I'm happy to have you on the show. Welcome to Shop Talk with the Sheriff. Thank you so much, Sheriff. I'm happy to be here. It feels like just a couple of weeks ago, we were wrapping up 2021. Here we are wrapping up 2022. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's blown by pretty quick every single year. And it's important to note that because 2019 and 2020 with COVID really impact how we were able to perform. And this is the first year where we got back to kind of the normalcy in terms of operating protocols, how BSO functions. So you're spot on with that. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of those changes that we saw and how we adapted again in 2022. So one thing I was thinking about as we have this um, wide ranging conversation is really in Public safety, we talk about serving the community and protecting the community. So I wanna kind of focus our conversation on those two elements today. Um, a lot of successes this year, um, particularly from our cold case unit, um, solving uh, a pillow case rapist, a uh, series of, of violent sexual assaults from the 1980s, uh, solving a murder from 1994. Talk a little about the context of that. I know you created this unit in 2019. What is the larger takeaway for the public when they hear about these types of high profile successes for a unit like the cold case unit? Yeah, you know, Kerry, I think the easiest way to kind of summarize it is what I've stated during press conferences, which is justice has no expiration date. You know, when you think about homicides and murders and these type of violent crimes that occur in our county, it really impacts the community, not just for that one period of time in which the violence occurred, but it creates a level of fear, uncertainty and security uh, and it devastates the families for decades on times. And so in 2019, when I came into the organization, I had a chance to meet with uh, Colonel John Hell, who's now the Executive Director of Professional Standards and Investigation. He said, hey, Sheriff, we got about 350 cases that are sitting in this cold case uh, component, but we don't have enough dedicated personnel to really tackle and go after these resources and then find bad guys and close these cases. To me, that was a tragedy. That was, uh, it was disappointing to hear that we hadn't focused as an organization historically on creating a cold case unit. And so we instantly jumped out. We went into this um, kind of uncertain as to how successful we would be. You know, some of these cases had set for 10, 20, almost 30 years. And now here we are, you know, kind of opening up these wounds, so to speak. And if we're not successful, you know, what type of impact that would have on family members, et cetera. But to your point, uh, our investigators and detectives just like hit it out the park. You know, we went back in one case, uh, you talk about the pillowcase rapist, an individual who had created some really violent acts in the community, and we brought that to a close. We, we had part another individual that we just talked about a few days ago who had brutally murdered an 89-year-old woman in her home. Um, no clues, no witnesses, nothing that would lead us to be able to apprehend somebody for almost 30 years. And now we have DNA evidence that secured that. The suspect had passed on, of course, in that type of timeline. But to give the family closure was huge. And technology eventually catches up. And I know that's that right. that's, a, that's always a focus for law enforcement as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're seeing it now. Uh, going back to how CODIS work and DNA 
you know, when I first started almost 17 years ago, uh, DNA was still in its evolution of we're going to use this in the investigative practices. And in less than two decades, we're closing out cases from 30 years ago. We're able to exhume different bodies from suspects and pull back DNA and confirm that, hey, that's our guy, that's the killer. That's huge. Um, I know that um, another unit that's been very successful is the aviation unit. We talk a lot about that unit here at BSO yeah. uh, and also on our social media through news releases. Uh, but that unit every day is out most of our units are out patrolling, but that unit is incredibly successful at what they do. And they yeah, received a major they're, award they're, this they're year. Huge. And let me, let me just tell the community this and put this out um, because this is always something that's not really defined, so to speak. People think that there's multiple aviation units. They think Fort Lauderdale have their own helicopters. Coral Springs have their own helicopters. Uh, Pembroke Pines. There is only one Air Force in this county, folks, and that's the Broward Sheriff's Office Aviation Unit. And again, looking at ways to how can we do things better, um, this I, I give credit where credit's due, dealing with Colonel uh, Robson, Steve Robson, who heads up the Department of Preparedness and Response. He and I were sitting around and we're both tactical guys from the SWAT community. And we start sharing cases where we weren't able to have aviation support us because aviation had to break off and support a medical call. And so I was like, all right, this is a huge opportunity for us. Here's what we can do. We can break up these two disciplines because we have fire rescue and law enforcement, unlike most sheriff's office. And we created the avi aviation unit to where fire rescue would not be impeded upon law enforcement operations or law enforcement against fire. Instead, they would operate independent. And instantly we've seen a huge success. From the time we launched that, really been uh, going from 2020 all the way to 2022, we flew over 6,000 plus different operations in just a single year, um, 900 plus different um, high level of rest and operations that were done from the air, uh, seized and recovered over 500 plus different vehicles. And, you know, we're just focusing on doing our job, but you never know who's watching. Uh, and the International Association of Chiefs of Police had recognized our aviation unit for the tremendous success that they had over everybody on planet Earth. I always say that because people forget the International Association of Chiefs of Police include memberships from all across the world and BSO came in number one. It's an incredible honor. It's a huge honor, you know, so shout out to my aviation guys. Keep it going, I expect the same thing next year. Absolutely, and we appreciate yeah. them patrolling from up above. Absolutely. So another uh, highlight this year uh, that I recall was the school resource uh, deputy training that uh, they undertook uh, before the school year yeah. up in uh, the northern end of the county. Training is obviously a huge focus for you right. and for this agency. So talk a little bit about that particular training, why that was so vital, and again, the message that it sends to the broader community. Yeah, I think coming in, everyone knows the tragedy about what occurred in Parkland in 2018 and how devastating the impact was for school safety in the entire country. Uh, we had a lot of lessons learned there. And one of the things we instantly did was to go out and advance the training protocols for all our patrol deputies. So we prepared them with tactical medical equipment. We procured uh, roughly $2 million for a rifle platforms so that they could have a fighting advantage. We changed our protocols in terms of how they would operate to respond more expeditiously, no more standing around or standing outside. But we also knew that in order for us to sustain that type of skill set, that we were gonna have to do it annually, consistently, and then we were also gonna have to make sure that our SROs, the frontline defense for our school safety, those folks would get advanced training frequently. But we didn't stop there. We start to look at Uvalde and other cases that occurred across the country 
and recognize that here's something else that is always an issue, management control. Captains, lieutenants, being able to communicate with their deputies, their officers inside of these school settings when violence is occurring has always been a conflict going back as far as you can imagine from uh, the early 1970s when Texas had their first shooting. And one of the things that we decided to do was to embed that training and involve all stakeholders so that it would simulate the most realistic uh, response that we could imagine. Absolutely, and it went extremely well. It went great. Um, we got a lot of great feedback from the families, um, uh, the family members in terms of hearing about the training we were doing. Parents are always concerned whether or not we're doing it. The school district was excited to see us build this training because we embedded them into role players and making sure uh, their principals and teachers were engaged and understood what was occurring. And I think you'll see us to continue to advance that on an annual basis. Great, great. Another issue that uh, kind of is always lurking out there is the drug fentanyl. Yes. And earlier this year, there was a high profile incident involving some spring breakers um, yeah. in a neighboring city. Just before that, uh, the agency, we had actually put out a news release uh, warning people about the rise in counterfeit pills that contained right. fentanyl. Yeah, the um, rainbow colored ones. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then um, later this year, our folks in Pompano Beach created a program, the Recovery Residence Walkaway Program. So a lot of elements, a lot of resources dedicated to that particular fight. Can you talk about that, the dangers to the community, sure. what the community should know and how we're tackling it? Yeah, look, folks, Broward County uh, and beyond these borders, uh, most certainly fentanyl and the opioid crisis is having a huge impact here. Uh, if you look at some of the numbers and overdose, the amount of homicide cases that we're getting involved in and working with the ME's office related to uh, fatalities in the field with the drug nexus, it's been an increase. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not something we're proud of, but when it comes to the state, Broward County is leading when it comes to these fentanyl deaths and the opiate crisis. And so one of the things we wanted to do is make sure we weren't sitting uh, idly by and waiting for support to come from the state or the federal government, but to launch resources and programs that we can do here uh, like the one you're talking about in Pompano, which is really driven on educating the community, making sure those who are suffering from any form of drug abuse are getting the necessary care and treatment so that we're not waiting until we find a dead body on the street to start reacting. Uh, another uh, element of importance that the community should know about is we looked at the opiate crisis and the impact uh, related to pharmaceutical companies and their involvement. Remember, we were the pill mill um, known in the nation here in South Florida. I was a detective in narcotics at the time uh, at Coral Springs, and I recall the amount of effort that we put into shutting that down. But uh, as a byproduct of all these pharmaceutical companies having involvement in it, uh, there was a major lawsuit that was passed through the federal government, it was successful, it rose into the state, and there's now gonna be abatement funds coming here to Broward County where we can use some of those monies to help educate um, deter some of the drug use and everything else. So I'm excited to work with the Attorney General on that. Um, Ashley Moody, she recognizes that this is a big issue for us here in Broward County and hopefully we'll get a seat at the table to make some good decisions. And I think it's also important to note that law enforcement is the front lines on this. That's a right. lot of times our men and women are the initial contact That's right. and so they have to have that particular training and the knowledge the awareness of what they're dealing with yes uh, as it's a different situation than maybe they would encounter yeah and i'll expand on that so one of the things that we knew we were going to have to do was invest in making sure one our personnel was safe and secure um, in case they were exposed to this fentanyl uh, the the microscopic levels of lethality that exists in that realm is frightening and so we armed all our personnel with narcan 
uh, in the case that they have to encounter someone who's having an overdose to give them a fighting chance to survive, but also in case one of our officers were exposed. We also were very creative and jumped out working with um, one of our directors or members, uh, Dave Scharf, who leads up community programs over in the Department of Detention, had recognized that there was new technology out there that could identify almost up to several thousand different variations of drugs or chemicals and identify it spot on. I think it was called the MX-900 system. And so now we've been deploying with that system out to these site locations, both whether it be medical or law enforcement or even a department of detention where we identify, hey, we don't, we're not sure what that is. We bring that equipment out, test it on site, and that minimizes exposure for our officers and our firefighters. Great. Very necessary. So, Sheriff, one topic that really um, got a lot of attention this year uh, is regional communications. Um, the public followed this. It was written about extensively in the local media. BSO pushed out a lot of information, important information that we'll talk about for the public to know sure. about um, how communications works. Uh, but share a little bit about uh, the challenges that we faced, uh, how we confronted them, and next steps for um, regional communications. Yeah, I think, you know, most of the community have heard little sound bites or read clips of things that may have been posted in the paper, but I think what needs to be clearly understood is that the regional communication system, or you hear PSAPs, our dispatchers, the 911 system, is managed uh, by two different entities. Part of the Sheriff's Office responsibility, my responsibility, is to supply 911 uh, and call takers and dispatchers to operate inside of the physical structures or these dispatch centers. The county controls the technology and the management protocols that exist. So in other words, they will procure what they think is best needed, and then they will dictate the management protocols in terms of how we're supposed to operate. This has been occurring now for well over a decade when the county elected to create a regional system uh, with the focal point that it would be a better processing system for the entire county. Unfortunately, over a span of 10 plus years, we've started to identify and see uh, the impact between technology not being either readily accessible or procured that we need or personnel issues, and then blending those together comes Stoneman Douglas, uh, one of the worst school shootings in American history. All those indicators and signs related to lack of technology, protocols, integration uh, was exposed on the surface, and now we all memorialized, hey, this is a problem. And so coming into the organization, I knew again that this was gonna be an issue that we were gonna have to attack on my administration, but it's not an exclusive decision-making process that I can make, which creates conflict, slows processing down. Uh, but we have had some success in that uh, just recently, a few months ago, we identified that we were having uh, a, man or a personnel issue in terms of dispatch, national issue, uh, individuals either retiring, leaving a profession, not coming in. And for our agency, for the Broward Sheriff's Office, it's important for the community to know we answer almost 2 million calls per service every single year. That's almost about 6,000 calls per day. And what we've seen through COVID, we lost personnel. We had to change our platform and structure for how we can uh, house these facilities without exposing personnel to COVID. We've really had to pivot, Carrie. And I went back to the county and said, look, we're having a personnel issue. This is a byproduct of decades of budgets being slimmed and cut, and it's time that we fill those gaps so we can be competitive and recruit and get the right people. Fortunately, the county uh, concurred, agreed, they provided the funding. Now in our communications is the best paid in the Tri-County area, the best in the state, uh, and it's given us a high level of competitiveness. In fact, in just 
60 plus days of launching a recruitment platform, we went from a 38% vacancy number down to 11. So we're on the great path, but we're not done. Uh, one other big issue, I think, which is gonna dictate the future of how we operate that communication system, county and myself, is we need a state of the art uh, PSAP or communication center specifically designed for that function right outside these doors here in our headquarters. Because a lot of people don't realize this, Kerry, we have three different public safety centers spread out throughout this county and BSO doesn't own any of them. So we are a tenant. We rent um, our people operate in these environments that weren't designed for communications uh, and it makes it complicated. And it's not me saying that an independent group conducted a survey um, that the, the county had requested and it clearly outlined that there was a lot of deficiencies in infrastructure. So what would the advantages be to having that state-of-the-art technology center? Well, I think I can give you samples of how we know having the facility state-of-the-art right here works. One of the challenges that was placed upon this administration was building out something called our real-time crime center, a state-of-the-art facility that is now here that allows for our detectives and investigators to track and monitor almost 19 different, 19,000 plus camera systems across 300 plus different school systems. Well, having that site location inside provides us an opportunity to have better oversight, management, personnel, integrating into everything that's occurring with dispatch. Bringing and building a new state-of-the-art facility here will enhance our ability to manage our personnel, have better situational awareness, create an environment that's specifically designed for dispatch, not buying an old building and retrofitting it. There's hurricane concerns, there's technology concerns. So bringing everyone together is not abnormal. It's abnormal that we don't have our facility here. And from a historical standpoint, once upon a time, dispatch was right downstairs and that was changed during a regional uh, process. It's also critical that we remind people that if you do uh, have a non-emergency, there's a specific non-emergency number of 954-764-HELP. That's 954-764-HELP-4357. Also important to remember that if you call 911, don't hang up uh, because then that will, if you call back in, it will put you at the back of the queue. So stay on the line, your call will be answered. Yeah, that's very important. Uh, first of all, understanding what's an emergency and what's not. Uh, what Some of the things that we've been able to learn through analyzing different cases that occurred uh, with dispatch, whether there's been an allegation of uh, failed performance or a legitimate concern about abandoned calls, people are hanging up the 911 calls very fast. And our, our, if it's a legitimate life-threatening emergency, we want you to stay on the line because the probability is, is that multiple calls are coming in and numerous dispatchers are receiving that call or processing it. And so we don't want anyone to hang up. We're gonna to get to the call. Um, and it's policy, it's protocol for us to even call you back. But one of the things we, we're recognizing as a challenge is when we call back, what's coming up on individual cell phones. I think we had a recent study that showed 80% of all incoming 911 calls are coming from cell phones. Uh, so when we call back, we, it shows up on your phone as just some 954 or 754 number, most people are going to ignore that if they're dealing with a crisis or emergency. So these are long-term plans. These are things that we have to advocate at both at the federal level and state level to be able to have a system where if we call back, it will instantly show on your phone that this is 911, this is um, Broward Sheriff's Office or a local police department. 
Yeah, that would be incredibly helpful mm -hmm. if we could do that. So you talked about earlier about uh, Broward Sheriff Fire Rescue, that we provide fire, yes. fire rescue service for a, a lot of the county. Um, new fire station this year in Deerfield Beach, new hazardous materials apparatus. Talk about the importance of bringing those elements online. Yeah, I think most individuals are not even aware uh, that back in 2003, the Sheriff's Office had absorbed uh, responsibilities for fire rescue emergency medical services. So we have roughly 800 members in this agency that represent the fire department. And so it's nice to see advancements when we get new state-of-the-art facilities because most of the facilities, again, uh, that exist from the fire rescue standpoint have been around for a while. And so a few of our cities have been able to jump out, make the investment, listen to our guidance, uh, procure these new buildings. Uh, our TRT group just launched a new state-of-the-art uh, vehicle, which is another, another tremendous uh, tool for us to be able to have We've seen the importance of being ready for those type of responses when we start looking at what occurred down in Miami with the building collapse and we sent our TRT personnel to support our neighbors. Well, that very much can happen here. And it's nice to know that we have the state-of-the-art equipment. And I gotta tell you, you know, uh, it was interesting uh, that Fire Rescue had been here for, since 2003 and I was the first sheriff uh, recently to go out and participate in Fire Rescue functions, running their PT course, putting out fires, understanding burn rates, looking at uh, all the different deployment strategies from repelling and high tower events. And I was so happy that I went out there because I learned a lot about fire rescue, but more importantly, I learned a lot about what they needed. Things that were vital. Uh, one piece of equipment that we procured and is coming in right now, which is tremendous, is the breathing apparatus for our firefighters. Uh, that is one of the core pieces of the equipment that they're gonna need if they're going into a fire is having the ability to have effective oxygen deployed in their mass and making sure that we're not unnecessarily losing firefighters because they have equipment that's outdated. Uh, I think our packs went back almost 25 years. And so it was exciting to hear from our training division within Fire Rescue uh, about the issues and concerns and know that we were able to shift funds and get that done and they're coming in right now. Fantastic. What was that training like for you to undertake it was with pretty, them? It was pretty neat. Um, you know, I'm an athletic guy, I'm competitive, so they put me through their um, entry obstacle course. I came up about a minute short from the record, but I'm gonna get it next year. Uh, and then also a, a nice contribution from our fire rescue guys was to issue me their helmet. Um, it's something that they don't give away lightly and it's something you have to earn. And so I put in the sweat equity and, and was awarded that. So that's a huge thing for me personally. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's transition over to the Department of Detention. Uh, one of the topics that you've spoken about, um, certainly from time to time when you've had the opportunity, is about um, housing uh, folks that are experiencing mental health uh, yes. challenges in our facilities. This is a topic that's very important to you. Um, from your perspective, what are the challenges there and what can be done about it? Yeah, look, this is a very important issue for the whole community to start paying attention to uh, and getting engaged from a community stakeholder standpoint and communicating with their elected officials to take better and swifter actions. Uh, our jail is within one of the top 20 largest operating jails in the United States. I think we're either 13 or 12. And we currently have an inmate population that will expand anywhere between 3,500 to a maximum capability of 4,500 or so personnel. We've been sitting at about 3,500. Now, myself, being in the academic world, uh, finishing up my PhD, I'm doing clinical studies right now on the impact of mental illness in law enforcement and how that rolls into our Department of Detention. 
And the numbers have been alarming. They've been absolutely alarming. Uh, when you start looking at some of the statistical data that exists, of the individuals that we have in custody that suffer from mental illness, when you take the totality of, I think it's roughly 950 plus different individuals, the hours of incarceration exceed over 500,000 um, incarceration days collectively inside. And what's happening there? We've become the de facto mental health facility for the county. Uh, and that's a, there's a moral dilemma there. Um, there's an ethical dilemma there, but there's also a social responsibility to do something about it. The goal is not to build another jail. It can't be to build another jail. We need critical infrastructure and programs in place to help treat these individuals from who suffer from mental illness so that law enforcement officers who are engaged out in the community, conducting patrol, encountering someone who's homeless, encountering someone who suffers from mental illness, are not stuck with one final option or resource, which is I need to arrest them and drop them off at the jail. And that's a repeated pattern that's been happening here in this county for well over two decades. And we're seeing the expansion, we're seeing the increase in the numbers. Uh, and then there's another byproduct that people don't talk about is we're losing people in jail through who are dying from medical issues, who suffer from mental illness, who shouldn't be in jail from the beginning. We're seeing people who are coming into the jail and may perhaps commit suicide that probably should have been getting care under a professional mental health facility that has uh, a level of expertise upon them and not leave that on the jail. So there's a huge compassion piece here uh, in addition to Absolutely. other elements. And it's not something that you can take ownership of yourself. This needs to be a broad effort. It, it's a community effort amongst all the criminal justice stakeholders. Uh, if you look at statistically the numbers uh, in terms of the volume of people who are incarcerated and suffer from mental illness, the majority of them, over 60 plus percent of them, are under the public defender's office uh, in terms of representation. The state attorney, the public defender office, has the greatest obligation to start taking these cases, analyzing them, and working with the judiciary to get these people out of our custody. I, as the sheriff of the county, uh, like every other sheriff throughout really the United States, we're responsible for three C's, and those threes are care, custody, and control. Nowhere in my responsibility am I obligated to control when that person can leave and what programs are they supposed to get. And so when they come in our care, um, we do everything to treat them humanely, to provide the medical care, to make sure they're getting all the resources, but it comes at a significant financial cost. Going back to some of those data points that I talked about, we're estimating spending about $117 million a year dealing with the mental health issues in the jail. $117 million. I can think of at least two dozen different programs that would have a more significant impact on public safety and quality of life but it's gonna cost funding, and those funds right now are being used to house mental health. Sheriff, we started off talking about how we protect the community. Let's talk about some of the ways in which we serve the community. Uh, obviously, they go hand in hand. Um, the Homeless Outreach Unit has been uh, incredibly active. They're incredibly active all the time. You recently did a podcast yes. with um, one of the sergeants from that unit to talk about some of the really personal moments of humanity uh, that they've had with folks in our community who are either homeless or on the precipice of becoming homeless. Deputy Michael Francis, who uh, is well known to you, I'm sure, um, honored as the 2020 BSO Deputy of the Year for his efforts. They are a, a, an incredible group of men and women who truly have uh, a servant's heart. Um, and can you talk a little bit about their efforts, what it's meant to you when you see the kind of 
uh, impact that they make on our community? I'll start with this. So you think about the homeless unit, you think about law enforcement. Um, 17 years ago, when I first started my law enforcement career, I was not thinking about the homeless community. That's just being honest. And I think most law enforcement officers, when they sign up for this profession, they want to chase down the bad guys. They want to find a guy who just robbed somebody. They want to go after the killer and bring them into custody. And that's a healthy thing. But I think over time, as we serve this community, we start recognizing that we wear a multitude of hats. And the homeless unit, the homeless outreach unit, what they do is just exceptional. They're taking um, a special look at really what's a social issue and the level of care, consideration, empathy that you must have to be able to sit with an individual for hours, hear their story, and try to find means to support them to get off the street. That's an extra, extra place for me. Uh, I think they are just phenomenal in how they go about it. And we've had so many different success stories uh, from seeing a veteran who uh, was sleeping in his car and one of our deputies going out and just talking to him, talking to him, off duty, talking to him, and then later discovering that, yeah, he was a military veteran, a veteran went through some hardships and found himself on the street. I think as people, we're all navigating through our day, we're going from one place to the next, we're seeing uh, homeless people with signs standing in the street, and instantly it's easy to, for us to discard them. Right, let's move on, I gotta go to work, I gotta get my kids, I gotta do everything else. But in that process of moving so quickly towards our own agendas, we forget that those are people. It's not, they're not cattle, they, they have a story, they have somebody who loved them, they lost somebody, they served God and country through the military. So to take that extra uh, time and to support these initiatives is huge. We're hoping to expand it. But I'll also roll into what we also know about the homeless issue is, there's a mental health component often with individuals who suffer from mental illness. And then here we find ourselves, or officers find themselves, perhaps at 2 a.m., no resolution, other than let me take them to jail. And that's part of what we have to breach when I talk about the Department of Detention issue. Absolutely. Um, another way that uh, we serve the community this year, um, during the pandemic, I know we, we gave away a lot of food. Um, we worked hand in hand with a lot of um, elements in the community, including Feeding South Florida. Yes. This year, uh, turkey giveaway. We also uh, just had the Shop with the Sheriff event yes. uh, through the getting Sheriff's Foundation and the Council. Yeah, talk about getting back to normal and then making those kind of connections with the community. Look, I can't, I have to recap really quickly the success that we had during uh, COVID-19, that pandemic, and give Captain Jones a shout out and her team. Uh, they end up conducting over 600 distribution operations and help put up, disseminate over 10 million pounds of food with Feeding South Florida and many other partners. Uh, but we also recognize, okay, it's time to get back to normal and being able to have shop talk with the sheriff, bringing the kids out, getting them engaged, being able to you know, shake hands and smile shows them the other side of what we do as first responders because the entire agency participated in that, which was huge. Uh, but I also like the fact of some of the things we've been able to accomplish through what some of our members in our strategic investigations divisions been able to do. Uh, for those who are not familiar with, that's our investigative arm, that's your undercover, that's your wire, that's all that cool stuff. And they seize millions and millions of dollars every single year. And fortunately, a good portion of those funds come back into the office. I have you know, the autonomy, uh, to select different 5013Cs who are doing great community work 
and fund them. And we issued out over $930,000 this year that went back into this community. So that's the type of work I like to see happening. That's enormous. And just briefly, what are some of those organizations that, that oh, get goodness. those funds? Oh, uh, goodness. We, we've gone from the Boys and Girls Club uh, to the 5,000 Role Models to United Way to the flight program. I mean, you name it, we've touched them uh, to some degree. And I think knowing how well SID or strategic investigations work, uh, I challenge them. I said, I need more money to give away. And I'm sure they're going to get this up to a million bucks next year. Uh, BSO's uh, Honor Guard, BSO personnel, um, we see these images on social media where they go out to uh, grave sites of fallen um, men and women of the agency. Talk about that initiative and why that's so critical for, for the agency and for the community to, to see. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of having a really thoughtful staff. Um, I remember right here in this office, one of our staffers came up and had mentioned the importance of being able to do something to honor our fallen at the district levels and get out there and go to the sites and clean them up. And I was like, man, what a great idea. What a great way to recognize somebody else's sacrifice. Because realistically over time, even when we lose a loved one, there's a diminishing element of their memory and what they sacrificed for. And for those who put on a uniform, we definitely wanna make sure we never forget. Um, some that were killed in the line of duty, some had medical issues. So we launched that and not surprisingly, but proudly we have a tremendous response for each site location that we go to. And our men and women are showing up, not just honor guard, uh, but district level folks, officers, sergeants, lieutenants, captains are showing up to these site locations. Yeah, it's a simple thing, but it's incredibly important and incredibly uh, just memorable. Uh, yeah. I'm sure for everyone that takes yeah, part. Yeah, for the community and most certainly for all the staff, knowing that, hey, you, know, you have an administration here who refuses to allow any of our first responder, first responder memories to just vanquish into the night. Hmm. Um, let's transition to another topic. Um, Lynn University, this was a, yes. a, a major achievement this year, the first graduating class. Um, just, I was at that um, graduation Mm -hmm. And just to see the, the smiles, to feel the energy, uh, the accomplishment uh, for these men and women who went through this course, in addition to their BSO duties to Duties achieve their right. Masters uh, of Public Administration. Talk about how you came up with that program, uh, you know, through the agency, and what it means, not just to the people that graduated, but maybe the broader perspective on, yeah. on the effect on the community. Well, one of the things I wanted to see happen um, from my own experiences, I put myself through grad school, uh, put myself through, through my PhD program now, starting to bridge the gap between the academic world and the field practitioners. Uh, because oftentimes you have individuals who start their law enforcement or fire rescue career at a very young age and they spend the majority of their time focusing on building up their expertise and their craft and getting really good at what they do and they put the academics to the side. And once they become senior ranking members, members, they've already, they're established. They have families, they have kids, they have all these other different responsibilities. So education get put back on, kind of on the side. For me, I wanted to have a executive command staff and membership core in this agency that would have enough academic credentials that would help build the reputation and the program and then the insight for how we operate as an organization uh, early. That established a succession program where we know people are getting the X amount of skill sets that they're learning, 
preparing them to become captains, lieutenants, majors, whatever, uh, battalion chiefs, whatever way they're gonna go. But the other side of it is this, most individuals when they retire from being a public safety professional, law enforcement, fire rescue, are going to leave here at an age where they're gonna have to work regardless of how well they saved, regardless of how much financial stability they have, there's going to be a want and desire to do something else. And I wanted to make sure that they had the academic credentials to walk out of here, supplementing their experience with degrees and get paid their worth when they go in the private sector. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, they worked, the partnership with Lynn University was fantastic. It was great. You know, we kicked it off and we had uh, pretty much from every rank structure in that class, they were a solid partner. They built out the program, worked in a cohort setting where they came to us and we came to them and, and we got this thing done. But we're expanding it. Uh, we just finished signing up a contract with NSU, uh, Nova Southeastern University, uh, where we're getting good discounts for people to go to school, but we're also building a succession program that will work from building the rank up to sergeant, lieutenant, etc., all the way up through the food chain. So I think the more we build out these programs and our new training center is almost done right around the corner, uh, we're probably gonna have every university in the region looking to participate in this program. So you just touched on our final topic as we have chatted about 2022, let's transition in now and, and look at 2023, the training center. Yes. Um, driving in every day, I can see more and more of it getting constructed. It's almost like a time lapse yep. every morning I when I drive in. I take the long in. way in so I can see it every morning. <laughs> it's, That's right. it's, it's incredibly impressive. It's incredibly impressive. Uh, I know you've spoken a lot about it. The agency has certainly uh, put out information to the public, but maybe for people that don't realize what that building is going to mean, not just for BSO, uh, but for law enforcement throughout this county. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, we'll recap, talk a little bit about history. Uh, first, the agency's been around for 107 years now, and we are the third largest sheriff's office in the United States with roughly 6,000 employees, and including the 800 firefighters. Um, we are the largest public safety organization in the entire state of Florida, a population of almost 22 million people. And for all that, we don't have our own training center. So what's happening over time is we've had to beg, borrow, or even steal from other municipal cities, uh, whether it be the range, whether it be Markham Park, whether it be a classroom setting. And that had an impact on our lack of preparedness before Stoneman Douglas in our response. Because we didn't have the ability to train consistently, put forth state-of-the-art programs, and use a facility to help train almost 1,500 law enforcement officers. We're the largest law enforcement organization here. And so without having a state-of-the-art facility and institute, all the training programs, all the advancements you heard about would diminish over time because sustainability is key. And if you're gonna sustain that type of training, you have to have the infrastructure. Hence, uh, people said it would take six, seven years for us to accomplish. Training center, I think in about a week, uh, will be fully erect, about 108,000 square feet, four story tall, state-of-the-art shooting range, simulation rooms, uh, strength and conditioning programs, everything that you could possibly imagine to make sure that our people are prepared to respond. Yeah, that continuity is gonna be crucial. Yes, it's huge. And speaking to a point that you talked about uh, having a regional impact, but also having a federal impact, we've already started uh, communications with the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI to be able to put forth some of the advanced courses that they offer for active shooter, tactical medicine, and conduct those courses right here at Broward Sheriff's Office 
versus having to send someone to, or any of us in law enforcement, what currently happens, sending someone to Glencoe, Georgia to train at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, or sending someone up to Quantico uh, in Virginia to train at the FBI site. Now we'll have the ability to do it right here in Broward County. Well, that'll be incredibly helpful. Yes. Incredibly helpful. Exciting time. Sheriff, thank you so much for allowing me to chat with you. Yeah. Uh, this has been incredibly educational and informative for me personally, and I'm sure for the broader community. So thank Great. you again for allowing Thanks me to do that. Thanks for coming up today, Absolutely. my man. Absolutely, Sheriff. Thank so, you. To everybody else, thank you for joining us on Shop Talk with the Sheriff. This is the wrap-up for the 2022 year. Thank you for your consistency, staying with us, following us, communicating back and engaging with us about different topics that you may want to hear us talk about. Uh, in the meantime, try to stay safe, be humble, and love somebody a little bit more than you love yourself. Take care.